for one, am glad that, that Jesus, one, is on the throne and that he's very comfortable there. Uh, that he doesn't take days off, he doesn't go on vacation, he doesn't fall asleep, he doesn't ever say, whoops, or I wish I would have, that he's on the throne, he's comfortable there, and he rules and reigns. Amen? Amen. Hey, we are uh, going to jump into the book of Ephesians today, chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit fast because I have a lot to cover today. So, um, this is a subject, we're jumping into, just right back into the book of Ephesians. It's a a subject that carries with it a lot of joy and, and a lot of pain that we're going to be talking about today. And um, in a room this size and, and the way that South is made up um, beautifully, we're coming from different backgrounds, different stages in life, um, that this message is going to fall differently on, on all of us. And um, I'm okay with that, and I'm praying that the Holy Spirit of God would, wherever you're at in your life, make uh, his word come alive to you. Um, anybody, just maybe show of hands, um, anybody in the room an, an artist? We have, we have a few, yeah, we have a few professional artists in here. I mean, people that do unbelievable works. Um, I am not one of them. Um, you know, they say everybody starts out an artist, that in kindergarten every kid in the class is an artist, and then um, you slowly develop um, into not being one. Well, even in kindergarten... I was not one of them. Um, I, I actually, I was, I was seeing a girl at an early on in college, and we got together with a few other couples, a group date, if you will, and decided to play Pictionary. And um, I thought, this is devastating one, but also I'm a team player, let's roll, you know? And so I can remember vividly getting the United States on one of the cards, and I was trying to draw out the United States, and she's guessing, like, bunny! <clears throat> And I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And then she said, dog. And I'm like, no, evac, it's not an animal. Um, and after the game, I kid you not, after the game, she just laid into me. And she's like, you are the worst artist of all time. And I said, yes, I am. And if you were waiting for your next Van Gogh to walk through the door, it's not me. And our relationship ended shortly thereafter. <laughs> I actually broke up with a person because of Pictionary. But that's neither here nor there. Have you ever thought of God as an artist? I mean, I, I think a lot of us, we go, we go up to the mountains and living in Colorado, we have uh, the unique pleasure of being able to see his glory and his splendor and his beauty in an awesome way. And, and I mean, standing on top of a 14,000 foot peak and you just look out and you see, man, this God is creative. He's wonderful. He's, he's magnificent. You, you stand... Um, on the on the beach and look out over the ocean and you see his majesty and his splendor and his magnificence. See, I, I always thought of God as an artist. Um, but it sort of stopped with his physical creation, the world that we live in. And, and I maybe fell short to realize that not only is he an artist in what he creates physically, in the mountains and the streams and the oceans and the rivers but that he's also an artist on the canvas of our lives. That, that he, throughout time, has always painted these pictures, and it's, it's almost as though you and I are sort of thick-headed. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> that we have a, a hard time understanding what he says, and so he, he says to us sometimes, hey, let me, let me paint you a picture. Let me paint you a picture. 
So you can go back and you can read in the Old Testament, you can read about God calling a prophet named Hosea. Remember this? He paints this picture for the nation of Israel and he says, Hey, Hosea, I want you, my prophet, my chosen guy, to go and marry a prostitute. Because my people, Israel, have played the harlot. And he paints this picture. I mean, these sweeping landscapes of Hosea's life. That he loves his people. That he is covenantally for them. But that they've wandered away. I mean, you have Isaiah. Who, in Isaiah chapter 20, it says Isaiah, he, he told, God told Isaiah, Hey, I want you to preach naked. You can thank me later for wearing pants. I mean, <laughs> I want you to preach naked because my people are going to get taken away and they're going to be left bare with nothing else. They're going to get taken into exile. And for three years, I want you to declare this message to this people. I mean, can you imagine that picture? And throughout time, God has been an artist. And I would submit that I think his favorite canvas to print on is the canvas of our lives. Not just in his physical creation in nature, but in his physical creation of humanity. He, he tells a story, he paints a picture, because oftentimes words just fall short. And what he wants to do is he wants to grip our hearts and our souls with the message that he has. Because it's so important of a message, he doesn't want us to miss it. You're saying, all right, Ryan, well, that's all great. We got God is similar to Bob Ross, excellent. I mean, what do we do with that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Would you turn to Ephesians chapter 5? Remember last week we discussed the, what it looks like, what it means, and how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this section, by no accident, flows straight out of that section because what we're going to talk about today is impossible if we're not filled with the Spirit. And Paul's going to jump into a section on marriage. And he talks about it for a few verses, and I want us to jump in, actually, at the very end, because I think Paul makes his his main point at the very end of this highly scrutinized section of Scripture. And here's what he says towards the end. And starting in verse 31, Paul writes this to his church at Ephesus. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave, as some translations will say, to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This this mystery is profound, writes Paul. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now... That sort of, if, if you've just joined us, that would flow out of absolutely nowhere if you haven't been here for the rest of the book of Ephesians. Because here's what Paul just said. After talking about marriage, he goes, I'm not really talking about marriage. You love when the Bible does that? All right, uh, I'm talking about marriage. I'm giving instruction for husbands and wives. And then he gets halfway through the passage and he goes, listen, this isn't really about that. It's about something deeper. It's about something more. It's about something way, way, way more vast than just marriage. It's about Christ and the church. It's about, it's about the gospel. That's what this is about. And here's where I, I want us to start this morning, and then we'll go back, and we're going to build this out. But our big idea for this morning, the point that if you hear nothing else, hear this, please. 
is that marriage paints a picture for us of the gospel on the canvas of our lives. That, that's essentially what Paul just said. In all this discussion about marriage, and all this instruction on how to live together, and all this instruction about the different roles that, that each party gets to play in that, what it's really about is seeing Jesus and savoring Him. See, marriage isn't just about you being happy and fulfilled and finding somebody that, quote-unquote, in the Jerry Maguire way, completes you. Marriage is about you seeing Jesus more fully and drinking more deeply of the joy and life that he has for you. And, and so my goal this morning is to, is to elevate marriage in our minds. That it's not just something that we do, that it's no coincidence that, that around the age of, you know, 11, 12, 13, you go from thinking that either guys or girls have cooties to, I got to get me one of those. <laughs> right? That, that, that happens... Almost across the board, and then I just want to throw out to you that maybe that's not by accident, but that it's by God's design that you would walk into and step into the brush strokes of what he's painting on the canvas of humanity. I love the way that Pastor John Piper puts it. And I'm a smart guy. I read Kelly my message last night and said, hey, um... <clears throat> talk a lot about women in here. You mind reading this and saying if I'm okay? And she goes, yeah, I think you're all right. But that John Piper quote is a little bit intense. So um, here's what he says. The ultimate reason, not the only one, of why we are sexual is to make God more deeply knowable. The language and imagery of sexuality are the most graphic and most powerful that the Bible uses to describe the relationship between God and his people both positively when they are faithful and negatively when they are not. God made us powerfully sexual so that he would be more deeply knowable. We're given the power to know each other sexually so that we might have some hint of what it will be like to know Christ supremely. You ever thought about that? That maybe, just maybe, on the canvas of our lives, God is saying, all right, you're going to be the color in the painting. That you're going to be a picture of my goodness. That you're going to be a picture of my grace to a world that needs to see that, that I am for them and that I love them and that I will not forsake them. You get to paint. And let's jump back in and see just how he builds this point out in the book of Ephesians. Verse, starting in verse 22 of chapter 5, Paul writes this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. All right. So you're going, all right, Paulson, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> I mean, it's sort of flowing up the, the stream of culture, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and I, for one, am, am not all that excited about where culture's going. So I don't really have any problem flowing, swimming against it. And Paul says really clearly, this is the role that each party is going to unpack for, for men as well, plays in a covenant marriage 
relationship. Now, we have to understand, at, at, before we jump into what, what all this means and what it looks like, that we should understand what it meant for them back in the day. I mean, because where Paul is writing, and in the, in the Roman Empire, women were, were valued minimally, to say the least. And so you had widespread, both legal and encouraged prostitution. And so many men were promiscuous, would just sleep around. And in fact, in fact, prostitution was one form of birth control. Is that men would just be out there doing their thing and their wives would be at home knowing that the whole thing was going on. But women had no power. They were just, they were seen as a, as a commodity, something to be taken, something to be owned and then done with what you pleased. In fact, in fact, did you know that before the Roman Senate, at, at two different times, there was actually, there were actually bills presented to mandate marriage because it just got to epidemic levels of guys, of men shirking their responsibility. And so, when Paul writes this, you have to know that if it sounds crazy to us, it sounded even crazier to them. And women flocked to the church. Because it took their value from one level. And it increased it exponentially. I mean, this was, this was a showstopper. So... so What does this mean? What does the word submission mean? Literally, it means to place yourself under. To place yourself under. But notice, notice, Paul's very specific because he doesn't say women submit to men, does he? He says, wives, submit to your own husband. So this isn't something just across the board that, that men need to be, or women need to be subordinate to men. No, 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 no. He said this is in a, specifically in a covenantal relationship that we might display and paint for humanity the glory and the splendor of the saving grace of Jesus Christ that women are to, I'm going to put it this way today, allow themselves to be loved and led by their husbands. That women are to allow themselves to be loved and led by their husbands. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. That they take a, a, a disposition or a, or a position of saying, all right, I will submit my life. I will place my life under your loving care and your leadership. And I will say to you, I trust you to love me, to, to do what you feel is right for me, and to lead me. Now, please hear me, because men have done some ridiculous, crazy things. Like, stupid men have done some ridiculous things with this. I mean, they, they've come in heavy-handed in, in the home, and it is not at all what God is talking about here, one. And two, it has nothing to do with value. It, he is in no way, shape, or form saying women are less valuable than men. In fact, Paul in the book of Galatians writes this. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all what? One in Christ. 
You are all equally valuable. The price that Jesus paid for your soul on the cross is the same across the board. This isn't, this doesn't, this has nothing to do with value. This has everything to do with role, with function. In theological terms, we, we would say that men and women are equal in essence and different in function. That's all. That's all. And so, ladies, women, wives specifically, let's, let's talk a little bit about what that means. Now, I get it. That's a very dangerous thing for a man to say. And I'm treading sort of lightly, but I'm not apologizing for Scripture in any way, shape, or form. First off, I'd say this is a principle. Did you notice that Paul doesn't give a lot of details? He doesn't say this is how this plays out and this is how this works out and and do this and don't do this. And so here's what that means. That means that in every marriage, both in this room and in every marriage ever, that there's room for you to decide what this looks like in your relationship. There's room. So so not every marriage is going to look the same. That's great. Praise be to Jesus. So what is... What does submission or placing yourself under or allowing yourself to be loved and led, what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean that you allow yourself to be ruled. It doesn't mean that there's a power for a superior position or person in your marriage. There's no superior, inferior. Remember, we said that we are equal in essence. It's never to be defined as mindless following. Never. Submission or headship does not mean that the husband makes every decision in the home. It doesn't. In fact, the really wise husbands won't. Sometimes leadership means saying, I think you're smarter than me. You know, the best leaders realize people's gifts. And they say, hey, I think you are more in tune. But it does mean, it means that the husbands will have have final say to love and to lead as best as they can under the guidance of Christ as our head. Um, It does not mean that a wife is obligated to follow her husband into sin. It does not mean that, that a wife sacrifices her freedom. In fact, as we'll talk about, I think it actually provides more freedom, ironically. It does not entail passivity. It doesn't mean that you just have to be quiet, okay? And just sort of step back and let it all take place. In fact, I think submission is active. It's saying, hey, you lead. I'm trusting you to love me. I'm putting myself under you. And so this is just, this is for free this morning. If you're not married here and you're a woman this morning, um, please hear me that the Bible is going to say this is a really important decision that you're going to make if you get married someday. And to choose well. Choose somebody who you feel like it would be an honor and a joy to partner with you for life because I trust that you will love me and lead me well. To love me and lead me well. It means that you Allow yourself to be served. I mean, I, I thought I might get a chuckle out of some wives. But that's what, that's what it means. 
you allow your husband to serve you, to love you in a way that's practical, that costs himself something. So how do we do this really? I think there's two things. One, ladies, respect your husband. In verse 33, it's going to come down to it. It's going to say, all right, husbands, love your wives and wives, respect your husbands. It's what we both long for most. If you're married, if you're married and you're sitting next to your wife today as a guy, my guess is that what you want more from your wife than anything else is respect. To know that she's not sort of talking bad about you behind your back. To know that she's going to encourage you, that she's going to support you, that she's going to be for you. And what Paul says is, hey, as, as wives allow their husbands, and I chose that word carefully, allow, because it's impossible to lead somebody who does not want to be led. Uh, the great football coach Vince Lombardi couldn't do it. General Patton couldn't do it. And, and guys, you can't either. So that's why he starts out with, all right, wives, this is the, this is the posture I'm expecting you, my husband, to love me and to lead me. And hey, here's the beautiful thing about it. When we live that out, we start to take a brush and we start to get, dip it in the color and we get to paint on the canvas of our lives the picture of how Jesus gently comes alongside of us when we're hurt, when we're broken, when we're in need. And he says, allow me to love you. Allow me to lead you. Allow me to nourish you and to feed you and to encourage you and to walk with you. Paul says it's a picture that we get to paint on the canvas of our lives. Or, or we get to observe on the canvas of other lives. He goes on. He goes on and he says this in verse 25. Just in case, um, guys, you thought you were getting off easy. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I, I, I both love and sense the weight of what Paul does because he doesn't just say, husbands, love your wives and leave it sort of ambiguous hanging out there. He says, all right, let me build this out for you a little bit. Husbands, love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church, where he willingly gave his life for her, for us. And he says, hey, here's the way that you paint to the, the picture for the world around us. Here's what this looks like is that marriage paints a picture of the gospel on the canvas of our lives as a husband leads by sacrificially loving his wife. Now that, that word love is, um, I mean, it has such a wide range of meaning in our world that it almost means nothing. It means a sort of nice romantic feeling in us. We, we feel love, but in the Bible... Um, it's a little bit different. I mean, I mean, in our culture, you can you can love sports, you can love reading, you can love music, you can love the Denver Broncos, you can love burritos, and you can love your wife. And we'd all agree 
Those are not all, hopefully, the same kind of love. So what does the word love, what does it really mean? Let me, let me throw it out for us, and especially guys, like, perk up your ears a little bit. Here's what it means. A biblical understanding of the word love refers primarily to a sacrificial commitment to actively meet the needs of your wife before you meet your own. A sacrificial commitment to actively meet the needs of your wife before you meet your own. It's a pretty high, it's a pretty high bar. So how are we doing? How are we doing? I'll tell you what. One of the things I both love and hate about, can a pastor say this? Love and hate about studying scripture is the way that God has a way of teaching me what I'm going to teach you. And, and some weeks it's painful. And this week it hurt. Because I realized, man, this is the goal and the bar is high and I just sense I'm not, I'm falling short of it. You know what I mean? Like, like do I actively meet the needs of my wife before I meet my own? Well, some days, yeah, and, and a lot of days, no. No. And I wonder about, you know, the relationships in here right now. Guys, how would, you, how would you honestly say that you're doing? And sometimes we just need a reminder that this is our calling. That, that this is what we are as men called to. That we would love our wife like Christ loved the church. That we would lay down our life for her. Not, not, not just like at one point in time, but on a daily basis. That it would be a decision we make. And, and so much of the time, I live my life like I saw this. Um, this meme the other day. It says, ladies, if a man says he will fix it, he will. There's no need to remind him every six months about it. <laughs> then in some ways, man, that's, that's the way that I operate in my relationship with Kelly. I had a, I had a beautiful picture of this growing up. Not not of this. <laughs> I, I had a beautiful picture growing up of what, of what it looks like for a husband to lay down his, his life for his wife. When I was 20 years old, <clears throat> my mom was diagnosed with stage 4 lymphoma cancer. Um, and that meant that there was a lot of treatment that they were going to go to, chemo and um, all sorts of stuff. And what I saw my dad do was faithfully take off work, with his laptop, and he would be in that hospital room where my mom was getting the drip, working away. And some of the time she'd be asleep, and I'd sort of think, well, Daddy, you could just as easily be in the office, but it was important for him to be there with her, that this was not a journey she was going to walk alone, but that they were going to walk it together. And and even now, in the last um, three months, we've seen my mom's health take another um, nosedive. No idea what's wrong. Uh, the white matter in her brain is off, and, and um, so we're not sure what the road looks like ahead. But once again, man, I've seen my dad love her well. To walk with her. To go to the hospital, to make the appointments, because she really can't remember to make them. To hold her arm. Whenever, you've seen him walk in here. Whenever they walk in here, he's holding her arm because she'll fall down without it. But I'm thinking, man, 
Lord, thank you for a dad who took the brush and painted well. And showed me not only what it looks like to walk with my wife every day, whether she is sick or well, every day, but also, Jesus, to, to paint a picture of the way that you walk with me. The way that you, you hold me when I, when, I, when I can't stand up. The way that when my knees get weak, you carry me. The way that you love me in a way that I can't even come to imagine. Man, so men, is that, is that the way that we're engaging our wives? Let me ask, I'm just going to throw out a few questions for you. Is there, is there any way that you're taking advantage of your wife? And I don't mean, I, I don't mean, I, I simply mean, is there a way that you've forgotten that she is one of God's greatest blessings to you? That maybe you've been married for a while and it just got normal. See, for us to actively love and to pursue means that we're in tune with the fact that she is one of God's greatest blessings to us. Guys, is there any way that you sense the Holy Spirit right now saying to you, I want you to serve her better, more, etc.? And I think the last way we sort of live this out is by guys communicating. Listen, it's easy for me to, to turn into a rock and just shut down. Because things get uncomfortable or I just don't feel like talking or whatever it is. And, and so, hey, hey guys, here's, here's the conversation that I'd encourage you to have at some point later on today. Is, is, hey, is there any way that I can love you better? Just ask it. Just ask it. And see what your wife might say. See what she might say. Because we're called and someday we'll give an account before the throne of God of how we did sacrificially loving our wives. And I don't know about you, but I want to paint it so well that the world starts to see Jesus. And I love, if you're going, hey, I don't know how to do that. I don't have the strength to do that. I don't have the desire to do that. Well, Paul sort of builds that into the passage. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so if you're, if you're a guy in here today, you're a husband, you need to be in a posture of receiving that love from him. Without that, you have no hope of being able to love your wife well. And so in a very real way, the best thing that both men and women can do for their marriage is fall more in love with Jesus to fall more in love with Jesus, to be more satisfied in Him, to find more joy in Him, because the more satisfied you are in Him, the more free you are to love them. And so often what happens in marriages is that both parties are depleted. And they're looking to the other to, to fill me up, give to me, love me, I, I need. And, and what Jesus says is, hey, will you come receive from me first? And then launch into painting this beautiful picture of the gospel on the canvas of your lives. And Paul continues. Now I'm actually going to go back and read a few verses that we already read. But he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And what was the result of that? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word 
so that he might present the church to himself. This is great. Present the church to himself in splendor. Did you know you don't just sneak in the back door of heaven? You don't show up and, and, and feel like, oh no, am I going to make it in? I got to sneak in the back way, you know, like the secret code. I'm like, all right, fine, I'm in. He didn't see me. Great, good. No. What he says is that when you be, appear before the throne of God, you appear in splendor, in glory, in magnificence because of what Jesus has done in you. And you're going, well, I just didn't earn that. Exactly, that's the gospel. And I didn't deserve that. Right. We know that she might be holy without blemish in the same way. So he's going to draw this sort of analogy from that, the way that we stand before the throne of God, holy, blameless, without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of one body. Here's what Paul says, that marriage does something in us. It stretches us. It, it, it grows us. See, it paints a picture of the gospel by the way that it stimulates mutual growth by, by both parties, in both now, if you've been married more than a day, you know that marriage isn't easy. I love doing premarital counseling. And even now, if there's anybody engaged in, the, in our congregation today, and you're going to hear me say, hey, marriage is hard. The guy's going to look at his fiance and say, not us, baby. <laughs> not us, baby. Not us. We are... This is going to be easy. This is going to be great. This is going to be eating strawberries and skipping through a field. And I love doing premarital counseling because I get to tell you, no, it's not always going to be like that. Any amens? Don't say it too loud. Don't say it, but, but yeah. That one of God's greatest tools in his toolbox to conform you more into the image of Jesus is your husband or your wife. And you see, God designed marriage not, not only to make you happy, but also to make you holy. that we would learn what it looks like to one, play the role that God has called us to play and to receive the love from Him, but also to live with somebody day in and day out and get to see them when they're off. Some of you are going, I'd like to see them when they're on. Just every once in a while. It'd be great. Well, here's where they're on for the few hours that we're at church, all right? So then, you know, anyway, okay, I'm just kidding. God is using your spouse to grow you. And so here's the thing, both men and women, fight for them. That one of the reasons God designed marriage is to bring somebody into such proximity with you that you love and that you are for and that you're committed to so that you can say to each other, I want to fight for your growth. I want to fight for your joy. I want to fight for you to know Jesus more to celebrate the times where sort of the clouds part and you get to see glimpses of who they're becoming and to, to celebrate those. And, and for the recognition that, that one day you'll stand before the throne and you will see your spouse the way that God sees them, complete, glorified, holy, and you'll say to them, I, I always knew. That's what you really want.
what a joy. For the short, however many years God gives you together. To say, I'm going to fight for your joy. And I'm going to trust that just maybe God might use me in your life to point you to Jesus. And he ends. He ends this section. Well, we'll end. He doesn't. He keeps going. But we started there. It says, therefore... And this is going to sort of, this is going to be a little bit, if you were to read it just straight through, this is going to be a little bit herky-jerky. It's going to feel a little bit forced in here, but I'll explain what Paul's doing. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's one of the most quoted passages about marriage in all the Bible. You have Jesus quoting it in Matthew chapter 19. You have Paul repeating it here. It's first seen in Galatians, or sorry, Genesis chapter 2. But what, what's the point of it here? See, what, what Paul is saying is that when you enter into a marriage, you enter into a per, permanent covenantal relationship where a, a man leaves his home. Hopefully, some, some guys who need to go, all right need to leave home. <laughs> Some parents are going, right. A man leaves his home and, and a wife cleaves, clings to her husband. That they become one flesh. And you see the final brush stroke that Paul paints in this picture of the gospel on the canvas of our lives is that marriage paints through the covenantal permanence that deepens and brings life to the relationship. That deepens and brings life to the relationship. See, a, a covenant is like a, is a promise, but it's a, it's a promise on steroids. It's a, it's a promise that's deep, that's exclusive, that's legal, that's personal, that's binding. And what Paul says is when these two come together, what it paints is a picture that they'll never be torn apart. That they'll never be torn apart. They are one. They're one. See, marriage is not a declaration of present love. It's a promise of future love. It's a promise that I'm with you in the, in the thick and the thin. And that's why the vows say, richer, poor, sickness in health. Because God wants us to get, he wants us to understand that this relationship that we step into with Him will not run dry. He wants us to understand that in the good times and the bad, He's with us. He wants us to understand that His love is strong and that it doesn't run out and that even when the night gets long and the days get dark, He is with us. That there's nothing that can separate us from His love, not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, or anything else in all of creation. He wants us to paint on the canvas of our lives through the permanence of the covenant of marriage that He is with us and He always will be and there's nothing that we can do that will change that. And that's what He wants us to see and that's what He wants us to drink deeply of because He knows that when we are secure in His love, we are free to live the life that He designed us to live. That we are released out of, the, out of the burden and out of the chains of thinking, listen, if I screw up, then I'm out. He goes, no, 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 I'm with you. 
but what if? And he's like, no, no, no. I'm with you no matter what. No matter what. Listen to the way these verses illustrate it. He says, but, the psalmist writes, but you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 147, 11, the Lord delights in those who fear Him or revere Him, who put their hope in His unfailing love. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And He says, hey, in the way that you stick by each other, in covenantal permanence, you take that brush and you paint for the world the story of a God who says, I will stand by you. Through it all, I'm for you. I am fighting for you. And I love you. And I love you. Wow. See, marriage is way more than just a boy meeting a girl and getting down on one knee. It's about us telling the story of a God who says, I'm willing to leave. I'm willing to leave heaven. I'm willing to leave my throne. I'm willing to leave glory to step into humanity to pursue you that we might forever cleave to each other. And man, South Fellowship Church, I pray that we would be people who paint well. Who paint well. That we'd have some conversations after this service that, that need to be had. Embrace the awkwardness of asking the difficult question because your joy's at stake and God's glory's at stake and those are big stakes, friends. Ask the difficult questions. And, and guys, take the lead in it. Ask the tough questions. It's worth it. It's worth it that you might taste of His goodness and that the world might see in us the glory of a Savior who says, I'm willing to leave everything to pursue you, to be by your side, so that you will know nothing can separate you from my love. I pray that we would paint really, really well. Jesus,